Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. No housekeeping today. I'm going to jump right into it. Today I'm speaking with Matt McCarthy. Matt is an infectious disease doctor and a professor of medicine at Cornell, where he also serves on the Ethics Committee. His writing has appeared in the New England Journal of Medicine, Sports Illustrated, Slate, and other journals. He is the author of several books, and his latest is Superbugs, The Race to Stop an Epidemic. And that's what we talk about today. The problem that many of the drugs we use to treat infectious disease are now failing, and will always be failing. We're in a perpetual arms race against evolution uh, and the emergence of new bugs that our immune systems have never seen. And this, quite amazingly, is a problem that is receiving very little attention, and yet it's on the short list of things that could utterly transform the character of human life, very much for the worse. It's also on the short list of problems for which the market appears to offer no solution, as we will discuss. So now, without further delay, I bring you Matt McCarthy. I am here with Matt McCarthy. Matt, thanks for coming on the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. So uh, you have written a book that um, could be terrifying. I mean, you, you try to be <laughs> as hopeful as uh, you can be throughout, but um, God, this topic is just, it's brutal. I mean, this could be my own uh, germ phobia creeping in here, but uh, you have written a book, Superbugs, The Race to Stop an Epidemic. And this is a topic I've been worrying about for a long time. And I think ever since that, the first Ebola scare and some of the books that followed, I mean, now we're talking, well, that must have been 1999 or thereabouts, maybe earlier. When um, I remember Lori Garrett wrote a big book about the prospect of emerging pandemics. Yep. Before we jump into the topic, um, tell us how you got into infectious disease and just what, what your focus has been. Yeah, well, I'm glad that you've been worrying about this for a while because not enough people have been thinking about superbugs. And I think the first thing is it's useful to define the term. Some people say that drug resistant bacteria are superbugs, but I take a much broader look at it and say that. What we're really talking about are drug-resistant fungi and parasites and viruses and all kinds of living things that can come and attack us. And, you know, writing this book, I wasn't trying to freak people out, but I think that has been sort of the fallout is that people read this and go, oh, man, this is a big deal. And those of us in infectious diseases have been trying to sound the alarm about this for a while. You know, the World Health Organization just came out and said that superbugs are going to be a bigger killer than heart disease and cancer by 2050. And so, yeah. you know, how I got into this, it wasn't something that I'd always dreamed of being an infectious disease specialist. I was a first-year medical student at Harvard in 2003, and I heard a lecture by a young and charismatic infectious disease doctor named Paul Farmer. And right. he, yeah, yeah, yeah you know, he has traveled to Haiti and all over the world bringing uh, drugs to people who couldn't afford them, bringing antibiotics and HIV medicines and tuberculosis medicines to people. And I just fell under his sway and I said, this is the guy. I, I want to do what he does. And six months later, I found myself in Western Africa hunting for the Ebola virus and trying to become an infectious disease doctor. And so that was, you know, 15 years ago. And so that, you know, sort of launched me in this career of trying to find what's going to be the next big pandemic, what's going to be 
the thing that gets to us? And how do we attack that? And how do we come up with treatments to, to stave off the next big thing? Yeah, I mean, the, one problem is that many of us have forgotten, or, or we never knew, in fact, how scary it was to live in a world where infectious diseases were ascendant. We have forgotten what it's like for people to routinely die from tetanus and other wound infections, or, you know, the whole generations of people were moving to warmer climates, you know, however ineffectually to try to mitigate their tuberculosis and, you know, which would kill yeah. them anyway. And we just, we lived in a world you know, for the, the longest time forever where there was just simply no guarantee or, or even promise that infections could be reliably treated. And then we had this fundamental breakthrough in, in, in what you detail in your book. I mean, penicillin was the first you know, widely available antibiotic. And it really ushered in a, a golden age when you could cure, you could expect to cure you know, all of these invisible agents of death. And we seem to have taken it for granted up to the point where now we have fallen out of that, that happy condition. Just, well, well, you nailed it. I mean, this is the thing that most people don't realize is the luxury we have of antibiotics. As you said, Penicillin ushered in the golden era of the 1950s, where every month or two, we were pumping out a new life-saving drug. And the life expectancy ballooned because of all of these new drugs. And then what happened was a number of prominent scientists, Nobel laureates, came out and said, you know, we got this infectious disease thing kicked. It's time to move on to more pressing matters like heart disease and cancer. And the pharmaceutical industry responded and started making chemotherapy drugs and blood thinners and all of these lucrative things just as the superbugs were starting to mutate and to evolve and to become resistant to our treatments. And so now we're finding that as we're finally paying attention to this issue, we're behind the eight ball in a sense because we're playing catch up. The drugs aren't working as well as they used to. And we're scrambling to find the next generation of life-saving drugs. And, you know, I'm reminded of this every single day when I walk into the hospital, the first place I go is the emergency room and I meet the patients who have these drug-resistant infections. And that's actually what led me to write this book is that, you know, people have talked about superbugs before. They've talked about the policy, about the science behind it, all of the stuff sort of at a 30,000-foot view. But what I was interested in were the patient stories and the lives that are completely derailed by these things. And the fact that the pharmaceutical industry is losing interest in making new antibiotics is devastating for tens of thousands of people. And so, you know, I'm trying to raise awareness, but also say, here's how we got in this mess and here's how we get out of it. So let's talk about, uh, we'll talk about the, the ways in which the, the business model of the pharmaceutical industry is not helping us here uh, and the market is not helping us here. But before we get there, let's just talk about the kind of the basic science. What we have is it really could have been foreseen based on evolutionary principles. I mean, we this isn't sur surprising that we have bugs that can mutate and become resistant to the treatments we devise for them. And again, the, the reminders of this happening are everywhere. I mean, we're recording this on a Monday. Yesterday, the, the front page of the Sunday New York Times had a story on uh, urinary tract infections showing antibiotic resistance to um, 
a surprising degree. I mean, something like 30% are resistant to, to most antibiotics at this point. It really is a pressing concern, but it's not just a matter of bugs evolving and getting around our antibiotics. It's, it's also just the fact that there are so-called superbugs everywhere as yet unencountered by us because you know, there are bacteria in the soil and elsewhere which you know, our immune system hasn't devised any response to and our drugs can't anticipate. And so we will be, you know, whether they mutate or not, we, will, we are very likely to encounter so-called superbugs in the future. Well, you're absolutely right. And one of the big problems we have is how doctors and scientists talk about these superbugs. You mentioned that front page Science Times article. I know the guy who wrote that piece because he's interviewed me before. And you know, one of the quotes from that article is that this level of, of antibiotic resistance is shocking. And I read that and I thought, shocking to who? Because doctors know this and scientists know this. But if this is shocking to the lay public, that's because we haven't done a good enough job of explaining exactly how this is happening. But, you know, we just had a new rollover with first year doctors who start in July. And every one of them knows by the third day of work that the antibiotics that they used in medical school are no longer working. And they got to use a new crop of, of drugs just to treat people. And that's because the bacteria are evolving, as you mentioned, and they're coming up with these ingenious ways to destroy the antibiotics that we've relied upon for a generation. One of the things they do is they make these things called efflux pumps, which are like microscopic vacuum cleaners, and they suck up antibiotics and they spit them out. And mm -hmm. then they, they use these um, enzymes that can chop up antibiotics. And so what we do and, and what my research is, is we look for new ways to fool the bacteria. And so one thing we found, for example, is that bacteria love iron. So we'll use a Trojan horse approach where we will attach an antibiotic to iron with the hope that the bacteria will see that iron and eat it and suck it up. And along with it, the antibiotic will go inside the cell and kill it. And we found that to be a pretty successful method so far for killing certain types of superbugs. And so, mm. you know, the stuff that I do is, uh, as I mentioned before, kind of scary stuff. But I'm also really excited and optimistic about all of the amazing science that's going on where we're constantly trying to, to fool the bacteria and come up with the, the way to save, you know, millions of lives. It's, it's extraordinary, the kind of science that's being done. And I don't think we're talking about it enough. You know, much of yeah. the work that you see in the newspapers has to do with the outbreaks or with the, the evolution of these drug-resistant bacteria. But I'd like to see a bit more about uh, the profiles of the scientists who are coming up with new cures. Yeah, I mean, I, I can see the basis for hope, although we might be a little slow in getting there. But, <laughs> you know, it, it's the difference between not having a remedy and having one that actually works and, and works as emphatically as a antibiotic that works does, in fact, work. It's just amazing. The 1950s must have been a, a mind-blowing decade to live through, to suddenly see these appalling diseases cured. I mean, well, now we're talking about not just antibiotics, but, uh, you know, let's add vaccines to that picture. And then <laughs> it just begins to look like every previous generation of humanity begins to look just unfortunate for having been born at the wrong time, because now we have these cures for diseases that people can just forget about for the rest of their lives. And yet, 
the, the problem, as you point out in your book, is that we should have always known that the arms race would never stop. These microorganisms are evolving quickly, and of course, our treatment and, you know, in, in the worst case, our, our misuse of antibiotics is creating a selection pressure which will select for resistance. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and you know, I open my book with a scene from the pre-antibiotic era, which is that we're on a battlefield in France and there are these soldiers who are getting hit with shrapnel and they're getting infections. And what do you do before there are antibiotics? Well, you can try antiseptic fluid. It didn't work all that well. Or you can try a hacksaw. And that increasingly is what people have to do, is just go to the hacksaw and cut somebody's leg off to prevent them from getting an infection. And the reason for that is that if the infection that's on the skin or on the leg gets into the blood, that's called sepsis. And if you have sepsis, you're going to die without antibiotics. And so, you know, I wanted to paint that picture for people to recognize that we're heading to a pre-antibiotic era where the drugs we've relied upon for 75 years don't work anymore. And this is, you know, it's not a, a period to say, it's not an, a, a doomsday scenario. We have a chance to invest in new treatments, but we have to do so selectively and carefully. And this is really an inflection point for humanity where we can say, this is an important issue. It's like global warming. It's like whatever else. You, you know, you hear about every day, this needs to be talked about in the same breath as a danger that we can invest in and come up with cures for. Let's talk about the problem of overuse, which is part of what got us here. I mean, I guess, it, you know, we would have gotten here even if we'd used these, wor these drugs as, as circumspectly as possible. But there is this pervasive problem of overuse. And I'm wondering if the incentives are misaligned here between the individual and society or if or if there's just a new way of understanding this because when i think about what most people's experience is in getting sick or you know watching their kid get sick and then facing the question of you know whether to treat with an antibiotic it has been a very frequent experience for many of us to be prescribed an antibiotic essentially to be on the safe side. Just It's prescribed oh, yes. empirically. You haven't even gotten to the point where an infection has been cultured and you know, you know precisely what it's responsive to. You're given a broad-spectrum antibiotic, and this is just the prudent thing to do. And now we're, we're stepping back and saying, well, this is not great for society because, again, we're part of the arms race that is creating a selection environment for superbugs. But is part of the problem here that what is in fact prudent for an individual is raising the risk for society or, or are the risks actually the same? I mean, that is when, when you're taking an antibiotic, as it said, just to be on the safe side, are you actually running the risk of breeding a superbug that is likely to be a problem for you first? Or, or is it conceivable that you're actually being prudent for yourself, but conceivably becoming a problem for society and how you're, yep. you're uh, using these drugs? Well, I'm a, I'm a medical school professor at Cornell, and that question that you just asked is what comes up on rounds almost every single day in various iterations, which is, we've got a patient in front of us 
who may have an infection and we're not sure, do we give them an antibiotic just to be on the safe side? And you know, generations of young doctors and old doctors have been dealing with that question. I'll tell you, I was given a, a talk about superbugs a couple of weeks ago, and there was a guy who raised his hand and said, you know how locusts were cast upon the earth as a judgment for human behavior? Do you think superbugs have been cast upon the earth as a similar judgment for human behavior? And you know, the question caught me off guard at first, but there's an argument to be made that in the same way that we brought this on ourselves, and, and the issue really is on the small scale and the large scale. On the small scale, we've got doctors who are prescribing antibiotics, as you mentioned, just to be on the safe side. And that's no longer good enough as an excuse to prescribe something. And we've, we've created a mechanism to check that. We have these people in the hospital who are called antibiotic stewards. And if you want to prescribe an antibiotic, an exp uh, one of our powerful drugs, the steward has to approve it. And that's a job that I've had before. And I'll tell you, it's a thankless job because what happens is a surgeon, you know, orders an expensive antibiotic and then I have to call them and say, I'm sorry, that's the wrong drug. And they say, oh, come on, please. Uh, this is, I've, I've been doing this 20 years. This is the drug I use. And I have to say, well, not anymore. Uh, that's, there's a better option for you. And so we're trying to check that the doctors misprescribing things. But also, this is about patients can do a better job as well. You know, if your doctor prescribes five days of an antibiotic and you stop taking it after day two because you're feeling better, that gives the, uh, the bugs a chance to mutate and to evolve because you're not killing all of them. And so it selects out the ones that can survive. And so that's sort of on the small scale how we can be doing a better job. But let, me, let me just ask you about the logic of that, Matt. Uh, yeah, when yeah. the steward is saying, no, no, that don't use that drug, use this one. Yep. Is that a case where he or she is trying to preserve the efficacy of a yep. the last line defenses we have? Absolutely. And so what happens is, I'll give you an example. There's an antibiotic called meropenem that we love using because it is so strong and it wipes out just about everything. And so if you're a doctor who just performed an ex, you know, complicated abdominal surgery, you want things to go well for that patient, you're going to ask for meropenem. And I'm going to say, well, based on everything we know about the patient and the environment and the type of surgery you did, you could use ceftriaxone, which is not nearly as strong. And then we have to have an argument <laughs> about, mm. about how to go forward. And, you know, I was listening to your your podcast with, um, with Ricky Gervais, and he started out by telling you that, that there's no place for nuanced arguments anymore. And I felt so bad for him because all I do is have nuanced arguments with people all day long. And I have many nuanced arguments about antibiotics with very sharp surgeons and clinicians who really are advocating for their patient. And we have to be the ones as stewards to say, that's not the right drug and face the fallout if the antibiotic doesn't work. This is what I was worried about. So there really is a misalignment between the interests of the patient, you know, narrowly construed and the interests of society with respect to a choice about which drug to use. Absolutely. And, you know, this is, I'm on the ethics committee and my research interests sort of are the intersection of infectious diseases and uh, medical ethics. And what we talk about a lot and what I study is, what do you do if you're a doctor and you have a patient who's got let's say two weeks to live, they've got terminal cancer, and they get a superbug infection. Do you treat them with one of the powerful antibiotics that we have, one of our precious drugs in the arsenal, and potentially breed resistance and potentially breed superbugs 
but to save that patient who's only got a few weeks to live. As I've found, doctors approach that question very differently, and there's no uniform uh, answer for them. And so sort of the next generation of, of clinicians are sort of winging it and do, figuring it out on the fly, which is how do you make life and death decisions when there is no formal training in how to do that? And so that's sort of on the small scale question of antibiotics. And then there's the larger scale issue, which is that we are using um, syphilis drugs and tuberculosis drugs in our orange groves. We're using our powerful fungal mm. drugs in tulip gardens. We're pumping meat-producing animals full of antibiotics. And, you know, whenever people hear this, they say, well, that's terrible. That should stop. But the reason that it doesn't stop is that there are powerful lobbies behind Big Orange, you know, the, the meat industry. Big Tulip <laughs> is something that you have to contend with. And these are things that allow, th these groups allow the antibiotics to go in places they shouldn't. And then when we search the soil around those tulips, it's full of superbugs. And if you're somebody with a weakened immune system, you breathe in the wrong thing, you could end up in the intensive care unit. And we're trying to become much more judicious about how we yeah. use those drugs. So how are our oranges and our tulips getting syphilis? Are they going to uh, brothels? And... Yeah. <laughs> They're very promiscuous uh, oranges and tulips. And we're trying to get, you know, starts with education, get, get them right. early. But what we, we recognize that there have been just sort of this freewheeling approach to prescribing practices all over the world. And that brings up another issue, which is the more we look for superbugs, the more we find them. And people try to categorize what's the burden of disease or what's the burden of these things around the world. We don't even know what's going on in Africa or in, in many uh, places in sub-Saharan Africa, in Bangladesh, in India. Every time we start looking for superbugs, we, we end up finding much more than we expected. And I think that that's only going to continue to grow in the years ahead. And so, you know, part of it is, is getting better diagnostics so that mm. we can know what we're dealing with so that we can come up with treatment plans. As far as the source of each new antibiotic, what percentage of them come from nature? Maybe penicillin, it was a compound produced by a fungus, right? So right. how much of our drug development is a matter of finding happy accidents in nature and how much is, is us synthesizing yep. new drugs based on a first principle understanding of the target microbe. Yeah, you, you hit on the two major approaches, which is, do we just get lucky and, and hope for the best or do we build a new antibiotic? And both approaches have worked. What we're finding is that it's getting to be prohibitively expensive to build new antibiotics atom by atom or molecule by molecule. So what people are doing now is they're searching in the soil. And the reason for that mm. is that, you know, beneath our feet, there's this subterranean warfare where survival of the fittest bacteria and fungi are pumping out chemicals to kill each other. And if we can pull one of those out, you've got yourself an antibiotic. The problem is that it typically costs about a billion dollars and 10 years of testing to show that that chemical is safe and effective as an antibiotic. And fewer and fewer companies want to take that financial risk because if they get that drug approved, you know, compare it to a blood pressure medicine or a lipid uh, lowering agent, these drugs, antibiotics are prescribed. The doctors are very stingy about prescribing them. They're only prescribed in short courses. And then even that great new antibiotic is going to wear out its welcome. 
So these companies are saying, no, thank you. Uh, we don't even want to go on the fishing expedition anymore. And so that has kind of led us to what I consider the most important medical issue that no one is talking about, which is that the antibiotic market is broken. And we should be asking every politician, every political candidate, what are you going to do to fix it? And so far, we haven't heard anything. And the reason that this is really important is that many people are saying, if the, if the big pharma doesn't want to make new drugs, well, good riddance, we should have the federal government do it. We should nationalize the production mm -hmm. of antibiotics and that we should view these things as a, a public good, like electricity or water. And so we can say goodbye to big pharma. That's a risky proposition and one that I think you're going to be hearing a lot more about in 2020 as more and more companies pull back from making these drugs. Just to reiterate a few things here, it is impressive how badly the market is able to incentivize what just on its face is a civilizational imperative. We clearly need to continue to develop new antibiotics. And yet, in the normal case, you know, you and I may take one of these drugs once a decade. And then, as you say, you know, it's, it's, that very drug is probably not going to work very well, you know, a couple of decades hence. And, you know, you compare this to something like, you know, an antidepressant or a statin, a drug that people take for the rest of their lives, in many cases, every day. From a business point of view, it's night and day. And well, and people say, you know, uh, the experts who I uh, talk with at the at the FDA and people who are in drug discovery, they say we shouldn't look at antibiotics the way we do an antidepressant. We should look at an antibiotic like a fire extinguisher, that it's something that just makes us all safe simply by existing, yeah. simply by being on the shelf. You can go into a hospital and feel comfortable that you're going to have that treatment if necessary. And that we need to disentangle the profit, current profit model from the prescribing practices. And so there's this push now to have a different model where it's like a Netflix or a, a subscription service where hospitals have to subscribe to various antibiotics to ensure that they are paying for them mm -hmm. in the event that they need them. And so, you know, behind the scenes, there are all of these different proposals that are being put forth that are being hashed out in meetings around the world you know, whether or not we should do these things called push and pull incentives. A push incentive is to go to a pharmaceutical company, say Johnson & Johnson, and say, you guys have been really good at making antibiotics for a long time, and we see that you're losing interest. Why don't we cut your corporate tax rate from 20% to 15% mm -hmm. if, you, if you promise to invest a portion of those profits in new antibiotics? It's a surefire way to pump more money into the system. The problem is, this is the same Johnson & Johnson that's on trial in Oklahoma for the, causing the opioid epidemic. And so there may not be the public will to go to a, a multi-billion dollar big pharma company and say, hey, could we give you guys a tax break so that you can keep making these drugs that keep us all alive? And then the other type of incentive is called a pull incentive, which is to say to a company, if you take that billion dollar risk and you go through all of the clinical trials, phase one, phase two, phase three, and you get a drug approved, rather than giving you seven years of market exclusivity, we'll give you 25 years. So you can charge mm -hmm. a higher rate for your antibiotics. And, and this issue of market exclusivity is a really powerful one. I work with a company called Allergan that was just purchased. But what they did was they found this loophole, which is that if they transferred their patent 
for one of their eye drugs to a Native American reservation, the Native Americans could invoke tribal sovereign immunity and no one could challenge the patent and they were going to split the profits. And so these kind of corporate shenanigans are happening behind the scenes. Most people don't, you know, aren't aware of it. But those of us who are in drug development are, are often left scratching our heads saying, is that legal? Is that okay? The, these Native Americans who've already been exploited for so long, we're, we're now going to be manipulating them for, for tax purposes and for generic competition. This doesn't seem right. It's just crazy that it seems like it should be straightforward to figure out a, a solution here because I mean, obviously we need to figure out how to incentivize this work. And I, you know, I understand how you know, socializing it in the sense of having government labs do the work, that's a, you, you touch that in your book, why that would not be optimal. The private sector is clearly the place where the most creative and sustainable approach to drug discovery has, is occurring. But figuring out how to subsidize this thing that it really, it really just se- seems like people haven't acquainted themselves with what the world will look like and will increasingly looks like in the absence of effective antibiotics. I right. Mean, just, you just right. need a few, you know, like your book is, is full of this information, but this is a place where, you know, a sufficiently vivid anecdote is going to do more work than real data because it, <laughs> it is just, this should be an absolutely obvious priority. Well, you know, the, the issue now is there's a lot of startups that have looked at making antibiotics and they are pulling away because of the case study of a company called Achaeogen. And Achaeogen spent years and millions of dollars developing an antibiotic called plazomycin. And it finally got approved by the FDA in June of 2018. And it was approved to a lot of fanfare and everyone was so excited. And the company filed for bankruptcy nine months later. And the reason for that is that the drug got approved for urinary tract infections, but no, nobody needed that. They wanted it for bloodstream infections. And the company had banked, you know, they were betting everything that they were going to get the approval for bloodstream infections, and they didn't. And that sent the stock price plummeting, and the company mm-hmm. lost everything based on that. And so these smaller companies are saying, we can't afford to go into this anymore because antibiotics have the highest failure rate of any type of new drug that's in production, higher than chemotherapy drugs or blood thinners or statins, any of that stuff. And so it's becoming so expensive to pull these trials off and so you know, difficult that increasingly people are saying, screw it, let's have the federal government take it over. And then you have all these free market people who are saying, oh no, please don't have the federal government get more involved in my health care. That's a disaster waiting to happen. So you know, this is as I said, this is going to be the most important political issue that nobody's talking about yet. And my hope is that from reading my book, that when people hear a politician put forward a proposal to address this, that you'll be able to sniff out, is that a good proposal or is that a bad proposal? Does this politician have any idea what they're talking about? Or are they just you know, reinventing the wheel or going down a road that is really going to prove to be a, a calamity and a huge waste of all of our taxpayer money? And so I think that, you know, the first step is just public engagement, is just to recognize, here's an issue, we can fix this if we all, you know, pitch in, and how should we do that moving forward? It just seems to me that you know, a certain class of medicines should be thought of as a, almost like a utility, I mean, like, like electricity. I think you actually, you might say this at some point in yep. your book. And, you know, if we were 
suffering power outages routinely and you know people were dying as a result you know we would figure out some way to solve this problem so it's a little bit like i mean we're talking about 20,000 people worldwide now who are dying because of superbugs that's the number isn't high enough to get people's attention if that goes to 200,000 people or beyond is this a situation where you think that it it has to get worse before we prioritize this yeah it's it's a, the the power outage is a a sensitive subject for me because I'm in New York and we had a big right, uh, had one, large yeah. scale power outage over the weekend for five hours and our mayor was campaigning in Iowa and was nowhere to be found and I I, I think that that's a an apt comparison that you know the question is how bad does it have to get before people care and you know I go around the country talking about this issue and every place I go people talk with me afterwards and tell me about a family member or a friend who had a superbug infection and how there was no treatment available. And then not only did they have to deal with the devastation of a family member contracting one of these things, but then they had to deal with questions surrounding contagions. And, you know, are they safe to go home? Are they going to be allowed to have visitors? Can the, the infected person have their grandchild come to the hospital to see them? And these are things that uh, as clinicians, we have to do such a better job explaining to people, you know, what, what's good and what's not good, what's allowed, what's not allowed. And there's so much fringe medicine out there and there's so many, you know, charlatans out there who are pitching, you know, quick fixes that I think that the, it's really challenging for people to navigate this stuff without, mm. uh, without a, a good doctor that they can trust. And, you know, I've, I've written about the fact that infectious disease, the specialty is having trouble recruiting new members. You would think right. that with all of the interest in infectious diseases and how superbugs are, are expanding around the world that, you know, pre-med students would want to go into this field, but we're having trouble filling the training spots. And the reason is that infectious disease doctors work harder than just about any other doctor in the hospital, and they're paid less than just about everyone else. And that's another, you know, a financial issue that we must confront in the years ahead. Yeah, well, so this is another market failure because of an infectious disease doctor doesn't get compensated for lots of paid procedures because there's not that many paid procedures beyond blood tests, I would imagine, in, in that field. That's right. You know, infectious disease is what we call a cognitive specialty. They give expert consultation and expert advice. They're not in there, you know, doing a cardiac catheterization or they're not cutting out a tumor. And as such, they just simply get paid less. And so, you know, anyone listening right now, if you know a doctor, ask them, what do you think of an infectious disease doctor? And they'll probably say something like they're the most thorough clinicians in the hospital or they're the most thoughtful clinicians who are, are there, you know, the latest, the, one, the last ones to leave and the first ones to arrive. And it's, it's really been difficult for me to watch this field dwindle. And one of the mm. messages I have is that it's such a wonderful field. You know, we get to go in and, and cure people. And it's one of these exciting fields that keeps getting bigger. Since I've become an infectious disease specialist, you know, there have been so many new diseases that we've found. When you're a cardiologist, you know, the number of heart problems that you're going to encounter is fairly stable. But with right. infectious diseases, we keep finding new viruses, new fungi, new parasites. So I've really got to stay on top of my game just to provide, you know, basic care to my patients. And trying to recruit the next generation of people is proving more and more difficult. Hmm. I was really surprised in your book to learn that the genomic sequencing of bacteria 
hasn't really helped drug discovery. And in fact, at one point you say that this actually set back drug discovery for a generation. <laughs> That's right. Well, you know, one of the pro in the process of writing this book, I, I sent it out to dozens of thought leaders and scientists and doctors to get comments on it. And they were all very positive, except for one who told me he really did Craig, not Craig like Venter. <laughs> really did not like the book. And, uh -huh. and I, re I was kind of stung by that at first. And then it turns out that he was the one who led the charge for that genomic sequencing project that I talk about that was the, you know, the biggest blunder in scientific discovery for the last 25, 30 years. And the idea was that if you could sequence the entire genome of a bacterium, you could then home in on various targets for antibiotics. And that just proved to be a big waste of money. And mm. we are we're still trying to recover from that. You know, all of these big pharma companies, Merck and Johnson and Johnson and Allergan, they became far more conservative in terms of the projects that they took on because they lost so much money in this, you know, wild goose chase. And so we are now trying to convince them that pharma, you know, that antibiotics can actually be profitable and, and good for patients. Uh, but they don't really care about that part. You know, I quote one of the pharmaceutical CEOs in my book who said that he, uh, he has an ethical mandate to charge as much money as possible for antibiotics because he is fundamentally accountable to shareholders and not to patients. And so whenever I go into a meeting with a pharmaceutical company, I remind myself that, you know, they're not on the patient side, they're on the profit side. And we have to figure out a way to work with them to try to benefit the patients that, that I'm, you know, seeing every morning in the emergency room. Mm. One sidebar question here, are bacteria becoming resistant to alcohol or any other chemical we would use to just like clean up, you know, surgical oh, yeah. instruments and, yeah, that's and our a, environment. That's a big area of investigation is what's the best hand sanitizer to use. Hmm. We had used alcohol-based sanitizers for a while, and now it's really pathogen-specific. So, for example, if somebody has C. diff, which is uh, Clostridium difficile, yeah. we will not use alcohol-based. We will just use soap and water because that's a better sanitizer. If you don't have C. diff, if you've got one of the uh, a typical run-of-the-mill infection, let's say you have a, a pneumococcus pneumonia, we could use alcohol-based. So it really depends patient to patient. And that's kind of the, you know, the future of personalized medicine is not only tailoring the treatments to patients, but then also the, the contact precautions that we must take uh, to prevent spreading of, of these conditions. Is alcohol just so good at killing microorganisms that there's really not yeah. a prospect that will wake up one day and discover that it doesn't work no, either? I mean, I'm, I'm not worried about us losing alcohol or bleach as really right. good disinfectants. You know, every once in a while, an organism pops up that's resistant, but alcohol has not been a problem for us. It's been a problem for me personally, but, <laughs> but right. not for, uh, for them. Wrong mode of dispensation. <laughs> yeah. That's right. I want to talk about some ethical issues here and, uh, the future, just what, sure. what's on the horizon here. But before we do that, since we started down this path, maybe you can talk a little bit about anything you do personally that may be different from what the uninformed person does. I mean, is there anything you do or don't do, you eat or don't eat, that people uh, wouldn't know yeah. to uh, do or to avoid? Yeah, the qu question I get a lot is, am I at risk for a superbug infection? 
And what I tell people is that I go into the hospital every morning and I treat roughly five or six people who have superbug infections. And when I go home at night, I'm not worried that I'm going to be transmitting one of these infections to my two young kids. And that's because uh, I take you know, the proper precautions, but also because I know that I have an intact immune system. And so one of the most important things people can do is just to have a, a basic conversation with your doctor and say, how's my immune system? So many of my patients don't realize that they have a medical condition that slightly alters their immune system or that they're taking a medication that may predispose them to infections. And if you don't have one of those problems, you don't have to go around being worried that you're going to stumble upon a superbug infection. You know, many of the patients I see end up getting, having chemotherapy or they're on high-dose steroids. They do, they're on something that predisposes them. So mm-hmm. I don't do anything, um, you know, out of the ordinary. You know, I, I try to, uh, to avoid, um, let's say, going into a moldy basement, for example, because I know that that can be high risk. But, you know, I'll, I'll go swimming in the ocean. I go hiking. I'll go do sort of normal life stuff. I shake hands with people. Nothing, you know, I don't have a weird diet. Although I'll say that I'm one of the people who uh, at the deli, periodically my, my order gets rejected by the guy making the food because it's so bizarre. <laughs> so so I, maybe I do eat what? some unusual things. Why? What are you, but, what are yeah, you I'm excluding? just the kind of guy who gets a uh, you know, cinnamon raisin bagel with uh, and eggs and hot sauce and cheese and oh, garlic. Okay. And just, they'll say, what are you doing? D- d- get okay, order so you're mentally <laughs> ill. That's, that's what you're saying. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you know, it, you touched upon the ethical issue with these in- infectious diseases. And one of the challenges that we're having right now is with reporting of this. And the example that I'll use is there's this fungal infection called Candida auris mm-hmm. that we've been talking about in fungal circles for years. And it was put on the front page of the New York Times in April of this year. And it drew a lot of attention because there's no treatment for it. And like half the people who get it die. And I was quoted in that article. And the day after that came out, I was invited by Good Morning America to go on and talk about this infection. And my hospital PR staff said that they did not want me to do that. And I thought that was an interesting PR decision, but they were concerned that it would draw attention to the fact that we have had superbugs in our hospital. Mm -hmm. And I ended up writing an op-ed in the New York Times about this, saying that I think that hospitals are losing an important PR battle, that we should be open about what we're seeing, and that we, the irony is that the best hospitals in the country tend to see more superbugs. Because right. we've got the, the most powerful diagnostics, we've got the experts, we've got the best antibiotics, we take on cases that are referred in from outside hospitals. So we shouldn't be ashamed or embarrassed that we might have more superbugs. And in fact, the Candida auris cases that I saw, I cured those people. We, I shouldn't, you know, we, we, sh- we need to be able to spread the word ab- about how we're doing that. And the ethics of talking about superbugs is something we still haven't figured out. And I think that that's something that we are going to be wrestling with for the next generation. We don't want to freak people out. We don't want them to avoid medical care because they think they're going to walk into a hospital and get a superbug infection. And so what I'm pushing for is for you know, experts to come out and say, here's how we keep people safe. Here's how we're trying to develop new cures. Here's what we can do to give people the best possible medical care. But that's easier said than done so far. And now I'm dimly remembering this story. Was this the story where 
in order to get this Candidaurus infection out of the room after the patient died, they basically had to remove the the walls you, and the you, you nailed know, the, it. The that's exactly that, that's and, the one. My God, yeah, that was terrifying. I could understand why, right. why a hospital the, would not that want that information hand, to get out. You know, we have experts who have spent years studying this who have been saying we need new antifungal treatments, and that was to me an opportunity to go out and and say we need to start thinking about this issue, and there was this ostrich effect where they said, we don't want people to think about this issue. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's, it's a challenge to convey this. And I think that we're working on, on the ways to do that appropriately. Yeah, it, there's just a, there's a, a larger problem here with how to even think about the information one gets. More transparency would seem to be an objective good here. And, you know, as a consumer of medicine, you want to know you know which hospitals are are better than others, and if you're if you have to have a risky procedure, you'd want to know the mortality rates yep. at one hospital versus another. But it's hard to even think about the information one would get in that case because the, the best hospitals often take the hardest cases. So if you're talking about a you know mortality rates with respect to surgeries, well, the trickiest surgeries are going to the best hospitals also, right? It's, so absolutely, it's, it's, a, it's like looking at a surgeon's success rate. Well, if they're only cherry picking the easiest cases, that doesn't really tell you anything if your case is complicated. Yeah. And so we, uh, we don't think that just having full transparency is going to help patients as consumers or as navigators of the healthcare system. So if we are going to release the names and, and amounts of superbugs that we're finding, we need to couple that with some sort of education. Otherwise, it's going to look like the terms and conditions for your iPhone, just this big long list of of nonsense, right. and that's not going to help anyone. Well, so yeah, let's talk a little bit about um, informed consent and how one goes about getting new drugs studied and and approved. In your book, you run through the the litany of horror stories from uh, the not too distant past, where notions of informed consent were non-existent. And we talk about the Nazi doctors and the Tuskegee experiments in the U.S. And the details of these cases are as appalling as anyone who's familiar with them can dimly remember. I mean, it's just, it's really hard to understand that these were doctors involved in these cases. But this is the, you know, that's the context from which we're emerging. And now we have protocols in place to be as scrupulous as possible ethically with respect to enrolling people into studies and testing drugs on on human subjects are we as good as as you can imagine us being at this point or are are you finding that you still run into ethical quandaries and practices that seem to compromise you or or anyone else who's who's doing this work right well that's the thing is when I'm not treating patients, uh, I'm experimenting on them. And that's something that you know, I take very seriously. But my job is to bring in new drugs that have never been used in our hospital before. And I go up to patients and I say, do you want to try this? And to get a drug approved for a clinical trial at my hospital is incredibly difficult. It typically takes almost a year of going back and forth with something called an institutional review board an IRB, and they can make your life miserable because they want every single issue ironed out before you get to waltz into the hospital with some experimental treatment. And 
you know, I wrote about the history of human experimentation to explain why we have the protocols and the oversight in place that we do now. And what you hit upon is what's so jaw-dropping about this, which is that physicians were doing horrible things to patients, you know, decade after decade, and they were largely left to police themselves. And, you know, I talk about the Tuskegee experiments or the, the Nazi doctors, and, you know, they were looking at each other saying, yeah, this is okay. I think this is fine. And that was, it's just outrageous looking through the lens of history, but it has created a number of safeguards that protect patients. And, you know, what I wanted people to do if they read my book is to say, you know, if a doctor comes up to them and says, hey, do you want to be in a, a clinical trial? You can have some idea of what that might entail. And one of the ethical challenges I have is that sometimes patients will consent to a, a trial or to take an experimental drug. And I'm not always sure that they know what they're getting themselves into, that they will give me consent, but I don't know if it's informed consent. And hmm. that's a really fine line to be on. You know, it's like a high wire act when you don't want to exploit somebody. But if they've got, let's say, an eighth grade education and you're talking to them about superbugs and novel treatments and you're trying to you know, make the information accessible to them without dumbing it down, that's a, that's a very powerful position to be in. And it's one that I think we all take very seriously. And it's a good thing that we have these safeguards in place so that you know, a guy like me can't just walk into the hospital and say, hey, I, I saw this new uh, treatment on the Goop website, and I think it would be great for all the patients. Let's, let's give it a shot. There are a number of people who will stop me and say, what do you think you're doing? And I, I think hmm. that that's a really important point when you read about clinical trials to know that there are a lot of people making sure that patients' best interests are, are at heart. So uh, now, now we, uh, whatever uh, slender rays of hope can be brought into the conversation, this is where they will appear. <laughs> what is on the horizon and yeah. how, what are the prospects of solving this problem oh, in your I, view? I think that we have a, a lot of reason to be hopeful. Some of the brightest minds, you know, I was mentioning that a lot of doctors don't want to be infectious disease specialists, but a lot of the brightest minds in basic science are interested in tackling this problem and are interested in discovering new antibiotics. And so the real issue here is that we are going to find new chemicals and new molecules that can be used to, to cure people. We just have to figure out who's going to pay for it. Because whenever we find one of these chemicals, they have to go through testing in a test tube and then in animals and then in healthy human volunteers and then in patients who have the, the, the superbug infection. And that whole process is you know, really expensive. And we just have to figure out, is this going to be led by big pharma or is this going to be led by the federal government? That's an issue that ultimately we are going to, to figure out and we're going to reconcile these financial issues. We just have to start asking our leaders how we're going to do it. So I'm you know, very optimistic that we're going to fix this. What about the role for deep-pocketed philanthropy here. Yeah, so, you know, like in the Bill in, and Melinda in, Gates Foundation. In, and yep, in England, there is uh, the Wellcome Trust, and there are a lot of deep pockets who are funding stuff over there. The problem we have is, you know, superbugs have in some ways been compared to the AIDS epidemic. And when HIV came on the scene in the early 1980s, the difference is when that happened, there was this huge public push to find a cure. And there were, you know, think back to all of the galas and the 
the celebrities who got behind this issue and raised you know, billions of dollars. And we immediately came up with treatments that saved lives. We're not seeing this with superbugs. For whatever reason, we have a branding problem, <laughs> which is that we have mm -hmm. not, I can't think of a single influencer or celebrity or thought leader or whatever you want to call them who actually wants to make this their issue. There's this vacuum because it's going, as uh, you know, I mentioned earlier, this is going to be the biggest killer in the world you know, by 2050. And somebody needs to take the mantle and say, we need to come up with a, a, a way to come up with cures. Let's do this now rather than waiting until it, it's too late. So we're going to figure it out. It's just a matter of who's going to you know, fund it. And I yeah. think that we'll, we'll sort that out soon. Well, I, I know that I have at least a few billionaires who listen to this podcast. So <laughs> oh, good. if you're out there, get this message because it's ridiculous, but it is a kind of PR problem. You need a clear enough case where this becomes insane that we, ha we have not prioritized this and we take stock of our madness and immediately marshal our resources. You know, and I see these cases every single day. Um, they're the, the people that I wrote about in my book. But you're right. It hasn't been a high profile enough case for people to have the fundraising and, and for the money to pour in to address this issue. But, you know, doctors are seeing this every day. Patients are, are, are dealing with it. Families. It's devastating. It's, it's, and it's only expanding. This problem is, is not something that's going to go away if we just, you know, stick our heads in the sand. We got to do something now. Yeah, it's not going to go away, and on some level, it will never go away unless we find some evolution-canceling logic <laughs> by which we, we address the problem, right? So this is a, you know, it's a little bit like we have the Earth-crossing asteroid problem, but, you know, they're actually, you know, landing with some regularity, and we see more coming, and there's just no question that they're going to hit. So we need to figure out the mechanism of deflection. That's right. right. That's right. And, you know, every once in a while, a superbug gets attention the way Candida Oris was on the front page of the Times. And, you know, that led one of our senators, Chuck Schumer, to come out and say that this is a federal emergency and that we need to tackle this. But I don't like that. That's a very passive way of dealing with the problem of waiting until, you know, a prominent newspaper takes this issue on. One way is to be more proactive and to learning, learn about it and then to engage with the issue and ask you know, our, our politicians and the people who fund philanthropy to say, let's do something about this and, and move the ball forward. Because there are a lot of scientists and doctors who are eager for the research support to, to keep pushing this forward. Hmm. Are there any foundations at, th at this moment that people could support that fund this work? Uh, well, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and the Wellcome Trust have done a lot of work so far. But one of the problems we have is that we've had this partnership for 75 years where the federal government funds basic scientists who discover these molecules. And then they partner with Big Pharma to go through the approval process. And we see that that partnership is dissolving. And so I think that one of the challenges we have right now is figuring out who's going to take up that partnership and what is going to be the mechanism for, let's say, that Nobel Prize winning scientist who discovers a new treatment for MRSA. Who are they going to partner with to bring that drug to the market? 
and we're still trying to figure out who that's going to be. But right now, I would say um, investing in the NIH, investing in Wellcome Trust, these are, are really good places to start. What, why is that partnership dissolving? Well, it, it's come back to the, the dollars and cents. The London School of Economics did a study and said that if a, if a big pharmaceutical company invests in a new antibiotic, the net present value is negative $50 million. They can expect to lose that much money. Right. And so the companies are saying, you know, we're going to do something else with our time. And this is a lot of the companies I work with are trying to bundle their anti-infectives units and sell them off because they're, they're losing them money. And it's, a, it's just a, something that's very hard to explain to a patient who is dying of a superbug infection, that there is no treatment because the pharmaceutical industry lost interest in, in coming up with a cure. Yeah, it's almost like there could be some creative way to bundle this with what, you know, by comparison is an obvious misappropriation of our funds. I mean, so for instance, we spend, I don't know how many billion dollars a year on cosmetics, right? I mean, it's, it's something, it's got to be something like, you know, a $40 billion a year industry. Why not actually just add a, a tax to a certain class of product that would go directly to solve this problem? I mean, like if you, for every, every $30 lipstick or whatever, I, I don't, I don't know what yeah, lipstick yeah. costs, but you can just imagine you add 50 cents that would go to deal with this problem that, that, that we, we have already established the market is not good at incentivizing, you know, it seems like that you could get a campaign of support around Well, that. it's such a great idea. I mean, you know, I mentioned the company Allergan that makes a new antibiotic called Dalbavancin. They also make Botox. Right. You know, they had $3 billion in sales last year in Botox, which was the only reason they had the resources to invest in antibiotics in the first place. So uh, I love this idea of coupling uh, a cosmetic tax with a, a drug discovery antibiotic incentive. So you may be onto something there. Well, I guess, I mean, in that case, it wouldn't be a tax. It could just be the cosmetic companies themselves could use it as a PR campaign. You know, yeah. that they could, you know, it's like their, their red campaign or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. All right. If, if you are uh, running a cosmetics company, you can take this idea for free. Please do. <laughs> and I will buy your lipstick at whatever price point. So uh, there, there was actually, there was one thing you wrote about in your book which I don't recall if the other shoe ever finally dropped on, but you, you, you wrote about a, a lysin-based treatment for infections. How has that evolved? Uh, that was one of the exciting parts of doing research for this book, was trying to find all of the new treatments that are in clinical development. And one is this thing called lysin, which can cause bacteria to explode. And it was discovered by this guy, Vince Fischetti at Rockefeller University. And, you know, I talk about how he's been working on this for 40 plus years, and mm -hmm. it's only finally in clinical trials now. And, and the reason is that the companies didn't think it would be profitable. And here you have this brilliant scientist sitting on a, a life-changing discovery, and it wasn't going anywhere simply because of the, the financial incentives. But there was just data released two months ago at one of the major infectious disease conferences that this lysin therapy is very promising for treating MRSA. Uh, mm. The challenge you, that with any of these new treatments is that the big companies want broad spectrum treatments. And so whenever you, you hear that there is a new uh, cure for a specific pathogen, whether it's Lyme disease or MRSA or Candida auris or whatever, 
the problem is those are very narrow spectrum. And that means that they're not going to make as much money off of them. They want right. a drug that can cure all types of bacterial infections. And so the challenge with Lysin is going to be that it's very expensive to produce and it can only cure certain types of infections. And so we've got to figure out a method. This is the same thing like with the, the, the phage therapy, bacteriophage therapy. We can use these genetically engineered viruses that can make bacteria explode. And this was just done in May with a 15-year-old girl from England who had a mycobacterium abscessus infection that wouldn't go away. And they used a cocktail of three bacteriophages to treat her. And it was this extraordinary story. It was on the cover of the, the Wall Street Journal and all over the place. And as soon as I read it, I said, well, they're never going to make this accessible to, to patients. Um, it's just too expensive. And that infection is too rare. And so what we're doing mm. is comparing it to uh, other orphan diseases, you know, things like mitochondrial diseases or certain diseases that the companies will never turn a profit on and figuring how do we incentivize them to keep developing these things when they're so narrow spectrum and the profit margins are so slim? And, and you know, it's unfortunate how many of these big decisions come down to dollars and cents. It's amazing that this entire problem is subsumed or produced by a, a massive market failure. Absolutely. I mean, this is just a place where we just have to relinquish our free market fundamentalism. I mean, the, those of us who are convinced that the private sector should do everything that the private sector does best. Well, yes, that, you know that that's still true, but this is clearly a point of critical failure. You can understand it in the case of a disease that is so rare that you know the normal person is unlikely to meet anyone who's ever met anyone who's had it, right? Where right. it's just your if something affects a sufficiently tiny number of people, well then you know, it's it's understandable how you know, that no one is going to spend a billion dollars to solve that particular problem. But we're talking about something that's going to affect everyone eventually if, you know, our most basic antibiotics fail. Absolutely. You know, I was a, a biophysics major as an undergrad, and I didn't take any economics courses. And it's only after I became a doctor that I had to get a crash course in economics to understand terms like market failure and you know, understanding what push and pull incentives are. And so much of the work that I do now is trying to figure out how do we bring an expensive new treatment into a hospital and convince the hospital that they can pay for it and that, you know, it, it's not just about benefiting patients. So much of the in Superbug's issue is that we need better diagnostic tests and companies will approach me and say, hey, we've got this great new diagnostic test. And I'll say, our hospital is never going to be able to pay for it. And that's such a shame that we are at this point where we're not thinking first about how we can benefit patients with better tests and better treatments. We're first thinking, how are we going to pay for it? And again, it comes back to this issue of being a market failure. Supply and demand curves no longer work when you're talking about individual patients who are, are vulnerable and who are dying. And We've got to do something different. And I think that, you know, public engagement is the first step, understanding the issue so that we can tackle it. Well, again, your book is a great read. It's super bugs. And um, I really thank you for taking the time to come on the podcast, Matt, because it's just it's great to finally tackle this issue. Oh, thanks so much for having me. This was great. <laughs> 